Welcome to Building Tomorrow, a show about the ways tech and innovation are making the world freer, wealthier, and as we'll discuss today, cleaner. I'm joined in the studio by returning guest host Peter Van Dorn, uh, editor of the Regulation Journal, and Joe Veruni. Did I say it right, Joe? Yes, you did. Joe Veruni from Cato Center for the Study of Science. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Now, we're going to talk today about the Green New Deal. And here I'll riff off of Voltaire, who famously said in the 18th century of the old Holy Roman Empire that it was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. I'm afraid the same might be true of the recently proposed Green New Deal, that's neither particularly green, all that new, or much of a deal. And uh, just to run through the Green New Deal wish list real quick. Um, includes some combination of like a job guarantee, uh, free college for all, 100% renewables, zero emission energy production, energy grid, grid upgrades, uh, an expansion of the building lead certification, uh, transportation funding for like electric cars, public transit, high speed rail, and uh, an, an inchoate means of discouraging industrial and agricultural emissions. Um, Peter, what stands out to you as you look down that list? Well, uh, uh, environmental policy is is different than other policy areas in the, in the sense that um, it's always been about a, a wish fulfillment. Um, and, and the political science literature a long time ago talked about the first Clean Air Act in 1970 and the amendments in 1977 as policy beyond capability and evidence is – we haven't met any Clean Air Act or Clean Water Act standards in time um, by deadline. So this is even uh, – this reminds me of, of the environmental movement in the 70s in that this is about purity and doing good things. And um, the, the current term for this, I guess, is virtue signaling. Uh, what's different is for me politically is that in the 70s uh, incarnation of this – there was competition between the parties for being better on the environment. So Richard Nixon and, and Senator Muskie from Maine were competing to be more virtuous and better on the environment, which led to this uh, kind of – well, the, the high point was in California, uh, the state senate in the spring of 1970, the California state senate voted to ban the internal combustion engine in California in five years. And <laughs> How'd that go? Yeah. Well, it, it, <laughs> it hasn't happened. But again, what's different now is uh, we're, we're in a, a different political situation in that the parties are not competing to be more environmentally virtuous. You have one party that's trying to do that to rally its base, and the other is oppositional. And thus, I'm less worried about the policy implications of this than uh, because of, of, of that difference. But even if we did pass substantive legislation like we did in the 70s, just because you pass a law that says we're going to do wonderful things in five years or 10 years, um, it doesn't mean it's possible. And if we blow past the deadlines, it doesn't mean that we'll ever enforce it because it 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 may not be convenient to do so. Well, the same is true of, of international treaties like you know, the Kyoto Agreement. I, I don't know how many countries have actually abided by the, the criteria that were laid out in the Kyoto Protocols. Like none as far as I know. Um, but it, there's no real enforcement mechanism for holding someone to account when you pass these even non-binding resolutions. I mean so there's – you know there's – there's you, as long as you pass a wish list that's open-ended, it makes people feel good. It takes some of the political pressure off the situation. Um, I, I think it's striking, though, Peter, hearing you talk about uh, the, the 70s. Um, and f folks who paid attention to politics at the time will remember that it's Richard Nixon. It's his administration that, that creates the EPA. And it's impossible to imagine a Republican president since – being proud of their administration creating the EPA because it's shifted to op to an oppositional stance, right? Um, but in the 1970s, that was considered um, unextraordinary that uh, Richard Nixon would create the EPA. It wasn't popular with conservatives in the Republican Party at the time, but they weren't in the driver's seat during the, during the Nixon administration, arguably. Um, it's also not surprising in historical terms. It, it, we're within – in the 70s, we're, we're – we're, we're, adjacent to the period when both parties are competing to out anti-communist each other. 
So you can really get, and I think there's a, a, um, a cautionary tale there, which is you should be worried when you have both parties lined up behind a major policy idea. Like it's, it's during that period of both parties being anti-communist that you get, uh, you get a variety of acts, uh, you know, that you get the who act, witch hunts, well, uh, it, it also tells you scare, go down the list of all kinds of abuses of civil liberties come from that shared that lack of oppositional politics. And remember that <clears throat> they politicians do this because they're trying to win elections. And so they think that the marginal voter is, in fact, very rabid about whatever it is they're fussing about. And so. If if the whole population gets hepped up on something and then both parties think that they really need to do something about this to win, watch out. That, that that's when that's when things happen. Now, uh, there, I, we should note that there are differences between the Green New Deal proposals. Um, in fact, I think Joe, you had you had noted that even in this this platform, there's the version that AOC Alexandria Ocasio Cortez had was leaked. There's like a private version that was leaked and then there's what finally came out and there are discrepancies between those two. Yeah, I think it was more of a – it was a fact sheet. Um, So it was kind of talking points, things like that. Um, Not that the Green New Deal itself, the document that came out was much more than kind of a series of talking points. Um, But the AOC draft, I think it is useful uh, for us to discuss in two ways. Um, One is that it really does show you uh, some of the thought thought process that goes behind the formulation of a document like this. Now, that being said, this is the most radical person in the caucuses kind of thoughts on what this thing should be. So maybe we shouldn't uh, shellac her with that. But on the other end of things, if we're talking about a, you know, uh, a, a two-partisan – two-party system, uh, the other side is going to shellac them for that. You know, they're going to hold them to the most radical part of this and you're certainly seeing that with Mitch McConnell uh, lining up a vote on this. I've never seen him smile so big. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a lot of – I mean the political games that can be played with uh, – whether it's, well, the Green New Deal is going to turn us into Venezuela, which is uh, – the kind of posturing and political gamesmanship going on is, uh, I, I think to use the Marxist term, it's epiphenomenal. It's the fluff at the top. And, and I think one of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast on a libertarian Green New Deal or how a libertarian should think through their response to, to the Green New Deal is that it is easy to fall into oppositional terms, right? Like to to throw out cheap shots, like you know, like a watermelon joke about AOC to to – uh, see environmentalism as a left-wing thing. I mean, I think w- we'll make the case here that concern about climate change and the our, our national response to climate change is something that libertarians can share that concern, even if the mechanisms, the, the process that we propose would be quite different from what you see on display in the Green New Deal. Um, so I think that's that's something we can contribute here in this in this show today. Uh, a lot of the critique uh, that I've seen so far. Uh, even from within Cato, and it's a legitimate critique, it's focused on that cost. You know, the Green New Deal is not much of a deal because the cost of any one of these items is exorbitant, right? We're talking about you know, multi-trillion dollar outlays to do one bit of this, any one bit of this piece. Um, and since debt to GDP is close to World War II levels already, uh, during peacetime, our margin is pretty slight. So, Peter... How are we going to pay for this? <laughs> you have to figure it out for AOC. <laughs> uh, well, we're not. Okay. <laughs> I mean, uh, the the current political political economy, the things that the parties can seem to agree on is um, to spend stuff and not pay for it and put the costs onto the future. Uh, so if we do increase appropriations to subsidize any of the items mentioned in this memoranda, then um, I doubt, I mean, again, I'm old enough to remember quaint things like people forget that Lyndon Johnson created and passed or proposed and then the Congress accepted an income tax surcharge Hmm. to pay for the Vietnam War. Hmm. Okay. I mean, that's what got, and that that's proper, our 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 late chairman uh, uh, Bill Niskanen said that taxes are the prices for public sector things, and so libertarians, the 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 current right is or the 
elected right is against taxes. And yet, if you're libertarian, you want you want visible taxation for whatever the government does, because then voters say, okay, we're increasing taxes to do this. So go back 50 years, if Lyndon Johnson were doing a Green New Deal, he would propose an income tax surcharge to pay for this national effort. Then we'd have a debate, a true open debate about, is this worth it? What are the costs? What are the benefits? Is this a national emergency? Whereas now, both parties have learned that the voter concern over the deficit and debt is is now zero. And because both sides have said bad things are going to happen, and they don't seem to happen in a short enough time frame for voters to to be recognized. And indeed, we keep saying it's going to happen and then it's somewhere in the future. Because the U.S. is the reserve currency of the world, we can borrow easily in world markets. So both parties have learned electorally they don't have to pay for this. Um, and and uh, the even uh, academic economists are struggling to understand why and whether debt does or doesn't matter and at what levels and when we will we become a third con- third world country that implodes because of, the, because of this well, part of this is i mean is that and this is deceptive but there used to be dire predictions i mean i, I even from my study of the 1960s historically um people used to propose that if we went off the gold standard if we started um un- you know deficit spending for wars or for, you know, guns and butter, uh, that would lead to an economic down spiral. And it, it might still yet, but well, we did a lot have, of those most dire, we had stagflation. We in the certainly 70s. had Vietnam. What we did yeah. have inflation when I was young yeah. and it was, it was a big deal. Right. And I remember when I was in grad school, I mean, inflation was 12, 13% a year. Right. And my stipend was fixed. And <laughs> that's not a great situation to be in. No. And then you had to try to buy a house in the early 80s when interest rates were... Mortgage was 21%. Yeah. I mean, it... Uh... So it was not costless. But since then, I mean, really, it feels like the 70s period of stagflation is far enough in most people's... It's, you have to be my age or older to to even think about it. That it has felt costless for like the better part of four decades. All the thing, whether it's Republican spending on on defense or on tax cuts, deficit spending, or left wing spending on on whatever it may be, um, in both cases, it has felt like a free lunch for for decades. Yeah, people have touched the hot stove and it doesn't seem so hot anymore. And so, yeah, yeah. they 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 realize in the short run it looks like each party can do its stuff, but borrow and Pete Peterson and worry about the debt, which is is, is sort of. Um, just fading as a as an intellectual concern. Yeah. So we end up with a conversation about a fantastically expensive uh, set of proposals, and really no one feels all that constrained to talk about about cost. And uh, so that's a problem. I think that's something that uh, here at Cato, our policy scholars are doing a good job pointing out. Um, I want to shift the focus though here to the kind of the the green aspects of this. Like, how is this? From an environmental standpoint, if your goal is to uh, uh, cut down on carbon emissions, to decrease the curve, the emissions curve so that, you know, less of the planet goes underwater, if that is your goal, what are the right mechanisms for making that happen? How are the mechanisms being proposed in the Green New Deal plan insufficient and how might we propose something better as libertarians? Because I I think the problem is if, if all we offer is their plans, their plan sucks, and we don't have a contrary plan, That we, the, the, the sucky plan wins every time. I mean, to some extent, this was the conversation o- over the uh, ACA, over, over Obamacare, which was, here's a plan. And despite us having problems with that plan, the, the folks who are critical of an expansion of, uh, of, of what we now call Obamacare didn't really do an effective job proposing an alternative. doesn't mean there weren't alternative plans, but the conversation just ended up being bad plan versus no plan versus keeping things the same. And if that's what the debate is, then then I, I think you've already ceded you've already ceded victory to the other side. Um, I think the same thing could happen here with the Green New Deal. So um, thinking through, if you're as an economist, Peter, Joe, too, um, 
what what are the basic questions that we have to ask when it comes to constructing a response to climate change as a libertarian or as an economist? Well, the first uh, first thing is to what do we know and what don't we know about uh, existing and future damages? So, from a libertarian perspective, you certainly don't have the right to behave in ways that inflict damages on others, and Climate change is sort of maybe the biggest externality to use the jargon in economics that we've ever faced because it's worldwide rather than uh, local pollution. And there's enormous – well, certainly Cato has argued that there's more dispute – well, first you have to have – you have to have views on climate models and what you think about them and whether they're predicting future temperature increases uh, well – accurately or not. And there's great debate that Pat Michaels has engaged in for Cato for 30 years on that. The second is, even if you have that, even if we knew with certainty what the temperature increase would be in the year, pick a year in the future, 100 years from now, we'd have to translate it into economic damages. In other words, whose property rights, whose whose things that they own uh, would be negatively affected by this, like emissions from a steam railroad and the fire and soot and and those kinds of things. There we have uh, the second part of climate models are these economic damage models. And uh, my journal regulation has run several articles arguing more than people realize what Bill Nordhaus won the Nobel Prize for in economics was not knowing what future damages would be, but rather a kind of off-the-cuff way of assuming a reduction in, in consumption in the future that we then could then derive of what an optimal tax would be given that reduction in consumption. But the reduction in consumption is not derived from knowledge. It's assumed. that That's the, the, the dirty little secret of, of the so-called integrated assessment models is that the economic component of them is literally that joke that you learned in freshman economics, which is the punchline being assume a can opener. So we have assumed a reduction in consumption in the future. And then out of that, you can derive what the optimal carbon tax would be. But we don't, we know strikingly little about how to translate a given temperature increase, even if we knew what it was, into economic damages. And let me end with the, the, um, Mainstream economic assessment of the damages for the industrialized countries is that they're basically zero. That that all the damages are are third world in nature, and thus this is really about us imposing damages on them. And do we owe them money to change their behavior? You know, et cetera, et cetera. But but for industrialized countries. So little of our GDP actually depends on climate or weather um, that the wheat belt will go a little north and everything. agriculture is only 2% of GDP. And so in some sense, I know this sounds callous, but it doesn't matter for OECD countries. Though if you – I mean you do in theory have an uptick in extreme weather conditions. So – more and more intense hurricanes. I, th- th- there is some debate over. Yeah, it's uh, there's debate as to whether or not that's going on now. I think statistically, and once again, if if you own a house in uh, in uh, Wilmington, North Carolina, your feelings on this may vary. Um, but it sure seems as though uh, NOAA, uh, who in the United States is probably a good place to look to uh, for weather data, uh, suggests that statistic significance in a rise in uh, hurricane activity in the Atlantic, for instance. Um, is uh, will be statistically insignificant until about 2050 if it does rise out of the noise. Um, but this is one of those things. I, I think this is a useful tool that uh, people try. There, there's argument over this. You can uh, you, some people try and have attribution and stuff like that. I don't want to say that it's incorrect, um, but I do think that there's a purpose that people want to show that these damages are happening to the United States because um, I think it was Adam Smith that uh, said something along the lines of if you stub your toe, you care about it quite a lot more than if a million people die in a Chinese earthquake. Um, so if you really want to get an American to care about 
about uh, climate change, uh, warn them that Disney's going to be underwater. Uh, don't tell them that a million Bangladeshis are going to need a, a boat to get out of there. Yeah. There's an economist at MIT um, named Pindike, um, who's he's argues that what we need to develop is an economics of catastrophes. And that global warming, climate change, whatever you want to call it, is just one of those things. So are loose nukes in Pakistan. So, so is earthquake prediction in Southern California. In other words, if you add up the set of horribles that could reduce welfare and lifestyle and real income uh, at any time and in the future, and then th try to think about how much money you want to spend on all of those things. If you add up all those horrible possibilities, you quickly exceed national income. And so that doesn't make any sense. So he says, here's the problem with what he's doing. He's saying somebody somewhere, a decision maker or the public sector has to set a budget constraint for worrying about catastrophes. Then how do you allocate money within that budget towards All these climate various, change versus yeah. earthquakes versus loose nukes? He's developing the latter, which is a microeconomics of catastrophe R&D allocation, if you yeah, could yeah. call it that. I find his work very interesting, but most of our listeners and probably the public probably wants an answer to the first question, which is – how much money should we spend on all of these things put together and how much – sort of like saying how much do you want to set aside for charity or your nest egg or whatever because you're worried about the future and all the bad stuff that can happen. And that is a thing that people have varying preferences about that across people and some of them will be very large and some will be very small and then we have to aggregate th those into some sort of – Budgetary decision. So, so to put this in in kind of uh, simple terms, it, to know whether something is worth doing, you have to do a cost benefit analysis, right? So, I might be worried about my home being burglarized. There are steps I can take to keep my home from being burglarized. I can pay to put iron bars on my windows and uh, you know shutters. Um, you know, an iron screen door on my door. I can pay for monitoring services, etc. Now. Your decision – now, in theory, everyone – if it was costless, everyone could do all those things to prevent even the slight chance of burglary. Not everyone does those things because only in some neighbor neighborhoods are the odds of a burglary high enough and the homeowner's worries about the risk of burglary high enough uh, to justify that cost. So when it comes to something like climate change, you, you have to decide, okay, is the equivalent cost – the, of the damages from global warming and sea rising and you know submerging chunks of territory, et cetera, is that worth X number of dollars? And is that number larger or smaller than the cost of trying to mitigate that problem and mitigate by how much? By 10%, by 70%, by 100%? All those things would have different, different, you know, different costs. Um, and so I think it is helpful, though. I mean, I, thinking of it as an economist, it's helpful to recognize that everything has a price. Even if we can't identify that price perfectly, there is a price on everything. And our, our resources are limited. We can't pay for everything either. Although, as we spoke earlier, notice our, our introduction, which is in the current fiscal environment the U.S. faces where borrowing by the government is so easy given the way – Mark, world capital markets seem to be working relative to U.S. Treasuries. That, oddly enough, it's very hard to talk about hardcore economics and a budget constraint in a or to sell it to voters in a context in which it looks like everybody can do everything and there isn't a budget constraint. So, well, we're trying to convince people who are worried that uh, to this is the uh, the old Louis fourteen saying. Uh, we're, people are worried in an environmental sense that après moi le déluge, after me the flood. <laughs> and there are folks who are saying, no, 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 we should be worried in in a financial, economic sense, après moi le déluge, that uh, there's, a, there's a point at which we will no longer be the reserve currency of the world. There's a point at which we can actually overtax the American economy and things get real bad real quickly if we reach that point. Probably, but we don't know where it is. Yeah, we don't know where it is. There's a lot of we don't know anything going on in the show. It's great. <laughs> um, well, let's put it this way. To convince people that as an expert, I can point to some set of facts and say, if we go above this number, 
bad stuff will happen. Um, there, there are people certainly attempting to figure that out. Carmen Reinhart at Harvard is one of them. I think from a uh, ecological point of view, um, to kind of take it to the the green end of things, uh, this is kind of similar to a ecological uh, J curve versus an S curve. Okay, uh, unpack that for us. So uh, uh, there are two different kind of growth models and populations of species. Um, one is something called an S curve, um, which as you reach carrying capacity, which is uh, the resources around you, um, how much uh, if you get close to exploiting all of those resources, say you live on uh, Easter Island, uh, if you uh, get to a certain point, uh, you realize you are running out of trees, you are running out of food. Um, and you correct your actions. Um, so what you do is you wind up becoming very, very efficient um, and you're able to match um, – and Peter, correct me if I'm wrong on this – but you're able to match um, kind of resources to population. Um, now, the alternative to that is something called a J-curve. Uh, a J-curve uh, means you blow past that, that same point and you reach a point very, very quickly – and then all of a sudden, there is nobody who lives on El on uh, Easter Island or Ellis Island, for that matter. But, um, but it, it's, it's very similar. Uh, but the green end of the Green New Deal, yeah. <laughs> the, the the famous uh, you know head statues on on Ellis Island. Yeah, <laughs> someone built them. Ca yeah. Cautionary note. Yeah, yeah, that's our tombstone, right? <laughs> Easter Island. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. The Statue of Liberty as a there you go. Statue of Liberty as a as a Easter Island uh, head statue. Um, so I mean that that's then you're running up against Malthusian restraints. We're just running out of food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's not well, it's not necessarily uh, so humans can possibly overcome Malthus. We can kind of have a discussion about that um, because we uh, you know uh, humans are the master resource. Um, but uh, if you look at um, uh, squirrels, not so much. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> that's that's true. Yeah, squirrels not known for their innovative use of technology, um, which is is something. I mean, there are a couple of points here. I think that that can be made before we move on to our kind of illustration of innovative technology, um, which is that okay. So let's just say we don't know the exact numbers of damages from climate change. We don't know the exact cost of the solutions and how well they will meet those changes. But let's just say damages are happening. And something should be done. We also then – so let's stipulate all that. We also then have to decide what mechanism do we use to address those problems. And one set of mechanisms that we see in the current Green New Deal is all about direct government funding uh, in R&D or in uh, you know, refitting buildings, building railroads, et cetera, or a set of subsidies for – private sector actors who will do those things. Um, so I want to talk about mechanisms a little bit here. Uh, and there are unintended consequences to any action, any policy action that we take. I have the story. I was telling this to Peter the other day. Um, after the creation of the EPA, they decided, you know, they the, well, then there was the Clean Water Act. We got to clean up our water. So we're going to penalize uh, industries that pollute rivers and, and lakes and and, and uh, my dad at the time was an industrial chemist worked for uh, um, a paper company which are very they pollute heavily and uh, he was in the boardroom he's fresh out of his PhD he's in this you know smoke-filled boardroom and back then people smoke-filled was literal um, and uh, they said okay here's the cost of meeting the EPA's clean water requirements of cleaning up our waste uh, and then here's the cost if we if we tell old Joe the janitor tonight to go open the valve into the Savannah River. And even if he gets caught every time that number, the fines we pay is less than the number of 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 actually cleaning the water. So call up old Joe and uh, the Savannah River is going to be a lot dirtier tomorrow. And so attempts to create these kind of we we're going to target this level and if you don't meet it. You're going to pay this amount of money. It was not a very effective regime, right? It created these kind of perverse incentives because they actually were cleaning their materials less than they were previously. You're better off not cleaning at all than cleaning partially and, 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 and right. So, I mean, ironically, they got more polluting as a result of the clean water regulations in this, well, in this one company at the time. So like as a libertarian, what, what's the, our proposal? What are the kind of proposals that we offer as an alternative, this kind of direct, heavy-handed kind of government intervention. Um, well, economists tend to favor the use of prices for 
things because it's a, it's a Hayekian view, which is that our ability to know all the ways in which we could improve our behavior relative to the environment. No one can can understand all the ways in which, in the United States, 330 million people could change their behavior. So subsidizing particular things rather than using prices means you're confining your efforts to those things and you're forgetting about all the millions of ways in which people could change their behavior to reduce CO2 emissions. So the economist's answer is always to use prices, to use a a, a, a tax, some, some sort of explicit government price on emissions. And in the current, art, current issue of regulation we talk about, you can it can be revenue neutral. In fact, we highly argue it should be. It shouldn't add or subtract from current public sector spending. And you can recycle the revenue um, on a per capita basis. You can you can change the income. You can do all sorts of things with with the revenue. But just uh, the purpose of the tax is not to raise government revenue; is to change prices. And once people face a price for emitting behavior, they'll try to figure out how to do less of it because it's priced. I mean, Montgomery County, Maryland, where I live, has a five cent tax on all plastic bags in the supermarket. And, you know, I'm a cheapskate. And this went in and I didn't want Montgomery County to get this. So the revenue wasn't recycled. So I so this was just money for Montgomery County. Well, I didn't want Montgomery County to have more money because I'm libertarian. And I went I I haven't used a bag since. And wow, that's impressive. I, level of discipline. <laughs> because I weaken sometimes. So five cents. I was like, it's not much, but in in fact it didn't it's trivial tax on my behavior. Most people aren't like me. Um, Montgomery County gets twenty million. <laughs> I think we can stipulate that, <laughs> <Yeah>. Peter. <laughs> Montgomery County, I read, gets over twenty million dollars a year in revenue from the bag tax. Do you understand how many bags that is? <laughs> Got to multiply by twenty because it's only five cents. So it's four four hundred million, million bags. bags. Yeah. That's which, given imagine what use was before the tax. Yeah. And let's look at the population there too. It's not exactly like uh, it's Wichita, Kansas over there. It's this the is the People's Republic of Montgomery County. But but to emphasize your point, I think you're making Peter, which is you don't like the fact that you don't like that particular use of the taxing power. But but it illustrates the it, this is the it, right way by pricing something the power that that has to do a thing, which is to discourage bag consumption. It altered my behavior completely. Yeah. Certainly. Which yeah. is <laughs> whereas the government just saying no one shall use bags anymore. There'd there, be a black market for bags. There'd be a you know, there'd be all kinds of workarounds. Um, I hate to be the naysaying libertarian, but I, I do want to put, point out a couple um, a couple differences here. Um, I, I actually found, um, shockingly, uh, that the bag tax in D.C. really does change my behavior. But every time I go to the grocery store, they pop up a screen that says, do you want to use a bag? Um, and I think that you really interact with that tax in a way that you don't interact with a carbon tax. Um, I, I, I know that, uh, Peter, uh, a lot of times to our uh, policy staff meetings, uh, you will make a statement along the lines of, have you looked at your electricity bill? Um, and you are usually greeted by blank faces. Um, so if a person doesn't realize that they're being taxed, does it affect their behavior? Now, that being said, if a price rises, they should be – they should respond to that. Well, to show you that Montgomery County can charge five cents explicitly and still raise twenty million dollars. Yeah. So when it's less explicit and it's hidden, uh, yeah, if, as a revenue raising device, yes. Um, but that being said, if we look at um, when we've put carbon taxes on the ballot, um, what you find out is Washington State one year uh, put on the ballot a, a revenue neutral carbon tax. Um, all of the big environmental groups, except like the Audubon Society, came out against it huh. um, because the revenue neutrality, they wanted to direct that money to political purposes. They put it on the ballot again 
this time with that money diverted to kind of this uh, – the word slush fund is, yeah. uh, <laughs> is, not, is not what I mean to say, but it's what I'm going to say. Let's call it a sludge uh, fund since we're talking yeah, about the environment. Ex- perfect. It is a sludge <laughs> fund um, that would fund uh, various different things that were um, you know, renewable energy research, uh, climate justice uh, issues, things like that. It was voted down again in Washington state. Um, now, I, I read somewhere, I have to admit, I did not read the Green Party's uh, platform, but I have heard that the Green New Deal is very, very similar to the Green Party platform yeah, with yeah. two exceptions. Uh, one was something about reducing the amount of war. And the other is that the Green New Deal says nothing about a carbon tax. And I do believe the Democrats might have learned that it is unpopular. But that's also why we're not talking about how funding this thing. That's right. That's right. No, it's true. What the sad thing is, is that economists' views about things have never have been taken very well by the public. I mean, don't – you. Uh, so the carbon tax is extremely unpopular and yet would be actually – widely very effective if we if we had it um so if there's i mean so we're talking about kind of one set of the problems which is that um pricing is a very effective mechanism and more effective the more transparent and overt it is but it's a very effective mechanism for changing behavior and in theory what we're talking about is changing emitting behavior that's what we're, we're trying to do uh and so we should use pricing mechanisms market mechanisms to if we want to accomplish that uh, more efficiently, more effectively than I think what's being proposed in the Green New Deal. The other component of this is the problem that even if we go, even if the Green New Deal works in the United States, it will not have, it'll have a relatively insignificant effect on global, on the pattern of global emissions growth. Because the US, and a lot of folks don't realize this, I think in the general public, we actually pollute less in both per capita terms and absolute terms. Uh, now than we did 10 years ago. Uh, we are actually have bent the cost curve. To use the, we have bent the curve down in the US. We emit less. We've emitted less year after year after year since the mid-2000s at a minimum. And it has not had an appreciable, appreciable effect on the rise of global emissions because the big drivers are China or India. In the future, it'll be bigger swaths of Africa. It's it's the developing world that we're seeing the real growth in global emissions. In fact, um, but but I think that's that is not at all in keeping with the a bit of the panic that you currently have around the new Green New Deal. And that's problematic because if we just say that we all agree that this is a problem that should be addressed – Addressing it using government mechanisms in the United States isn't going to help address the problem, the much bigger problem in the rest of the world. So if we create subsidies for American companies, that doesn't do nearly as much to – but if we use market pricing mechanisms and encourage innovation, that can spill over to the rest of the globe in a way that what's being proposed in the New Deal won't. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, that's really what they're going for here. Um, you know, there uh, a lot of Republicans have been saying this will take away your car and that's not really true. No, absolutely. Um, yeah. But that would require us to have the technology that would replace your current car, that there would be a electric vehicle that you would then go to. Um, and we're starting to have them on the market, whether or not you can afford them, whether or not they provide you with the service you need, whether or not batteries are – these are all different discussions. Um, but that being said, the technology needs to be there and the point of this is to get us to the next technology. Whether or not it's going to get there, I probably disagree with AOC. Um, but that being said, there are different things that we can uh, do to uh, encourage technology transfer. In reality, these places that we're talking about being the future of, of emissions uh, are developing nations, Western Africa, uh, China, India. Uh, if you are uh, in Nigeria, uh, you are taking American technology. It's not that you're stealing it. It's nothing. It's, you know, they do not have uh, roads with medians that are eight lanes wide. That is something that comes from the Western world. Um, so we want them to adopt our technology because not only are they buying our products, but it leaves them better off. And as we've mentioned before, the better off you are, the cleaner your environment is. Um, so I do think there's something to this. The reason that they have this sense of urgency is because if we start putting, if we let's 
let's put all techno- technological feasibility aside, um, if we have these areas where the population is growing quickly, their, uh, their level of affluence is growing very quickly, we want to make certain that the platform on which they build is this new, this new smart grid with batteries and solar panels and all that stuff. We don't want them to put in the coal-fired power plant. Now, there are different ways we can go about that, uh, transferring that technology, but it is a thing actually that currently the – you know, we are we have diplomacy doing that. The, under the Obama administration, there were a lot of people going to international conferences trying to get this technology in India. Well, one of the things that's great about um, market fueled technological innovation is that you really don't have to do all that much work, right? So it's like uh, when when modern cell phone tech, a lot of which was innovated in in, in like Sweden, uh, and then quickly rolled out Sweden, Finland. Uh, uh, is that where Nokia is? Yeah. And then it gets rolled out en masse in the US. You have the rise of, you know, Apple and, and Samsung. Well, Samsung's not even in the US, but um, those phones have had a transformative impact much greater even than the United States uh, or Europe or, or East Asia in Africa. And we didn't have to do anything to make that happen. The, the, that's the power of, of, of the market. To good idea, good profitable ideas spread without any kind of you know, need for intervention from from diplomats or from you know politicians or policy experts. To, to go back to uh, you know, uh, li- carbon taxes are considered to be a divisive issue within the libertarian community. Um, it, you know, Cato has published papers on whether a carbon tax is good or bad thing. Um, also, uh, a, another libertarian, possibly libertarian uh, solution to this um, that is also uh, we, we're going to anger all of the libertarians talking about is whether or not um, intellectual property, uh, if we if we kind of got rid of intellectual property, would that speed up this kind of tech transfer? Um, and what would that do? I know uh, my colleague Terrence Keeley is kind of talking about different ways of um, uh, of uh, dealing with uh, immigration restrictions, things like this. And uh, one of the things that uh, he's changed my thinking on, frankly, is the value of intellectual property um, and what that would do if, you know, if you lived in Nigeria and you know the, you might have the patent on a cell phone, you know Samsung has the patent on the Samsung Galaxy, but nobody owns the patent on a smartphone. So any smartphone can get down there and does the job. Um, so it does become a question of um, you know what do we think about intellectual property? And the Democrats, the the Obama administration came out really really hard at the Chinese for stealing intellectual property and selling us cheap solar panels that helped combat climate How change. How dare they? <laughs> No, I mean, right. Yeah. It's it's ludicrous if you're thinking about it from an environmental perspective, which is that we actually want the Chinese government. It's great for us if the Chinese government subsidizes solar panel production. We shouldn't be complaining about that. It's very odd. It's very odd. Hal Varian, who was an economist at uh, Michigan, I think, and now he's the chief economist at Google. He once wrote a paper that said, well, wait, what's wrong with – we give them paper and they give us stuff. <laughs> That's right. I.e. our debt. And yeah. uh, so it's a pretty good deal. <laughs> um, just just for the end here, we're kind of running low on time. But uh, there's a. I mean, we obviously can't cover the entirety of tech innovation as a solution to climate change problems. So I thought we'd focus in on one very specific problem that's arisen with the rise of renewable energy, especially wind and solar, and that is technological solutions to something called the duck curve. Peter, what what is the duck curve? The duck curve refers to a picture of the uh, net output by hour in California of uh, fossil fuel electricity production. In other words, take total electricity production, subtract out uh, renewable, tr- subtract out solar and wind, and do that by time of day, and then have curves that reflect that pattern every year. So what's happening is as solar and wind take over a greater and greater percentage um, of total uh, uh, production in California, during the day when their production is highest, the net production of all other sources, traditional natural gas, uh, nuclear, and very little. Well, there's no coal in California. They use some from from Utah. Uh, that that output is trending towards zero. In 
In other words, the solar and wind are so high that you're literally having to shut down or get rid of all the traditional sources during the day. But then at sunset, you've got this huge demand problem at supper time, and the sun goes down. Everyone's watching the winter, Netflix, so and it's so. If you look at the shape of these curves mm-hmm. in a picture, and maybe we'll do a link. Uh, yeah, we'll have to yeah. for for our listeners to look at. It's hard to talk about it. Uh, it's if you look at this pattern of curves, it ends up looking like a duck, yeah. and and so this is the. ISO duck curve in California is a problem, and it's such a problem that in the springtime and the fall in California and in PJM here in the east, uh, you have negative prices, negative wholesale prices in off-peak hours for basically nuclear and coal plants. In other words, they we don't pay them to produce because they have great difficulty shutting down and varying their output. There's so much of that, and the solar and wind are so high now that we have too much capacity. So the price signal on the wholesale market says the producer has to pay to put output onto the grid. It's it's just which is it's a way crazy. Of, it's a waste. I mean, it's, ultimately, yes. it's it's wasted energy. But just and um, I mean to put this in simple terms, where the duck curve both both affects daily or even weekly use, where it's like we need peak electricity at 8 p.m. when everyone's on Netflix. But if you're relying on solar, peak production is not at 8 p.m. It's at 12 a.m. or it's sometime during the day. And so that mismatch leads to to waste. You need to transfer the energy across time chronologically. Um, or there's also seasonal. You know, like in Miami, they need lots of energy in the summer to power air conditioning systems. They don't need it in the winter as much, right? So there's a seasonal duck curve and a, a kind of a daily duck curve. Um, and traditionally, the idea is you store, you try to shift that energy across time by storing it. Well, we wish we could. Well, the storage yeah. is extremely Tough. limited at this Tough. time. And so what we have is lots of supply that we call up on short notice rather than smoothing through storage. Uh, but we're going to talk about some storage. Right. So either you can, yeah, you can try to down ramp production and then up ramp it when you need it. And you can do that when it's a matter of shoveling coal into a furnace to be crude. You can't do that when it's the sun. You can't make the sun stop shining and then make it shine at night. You, that, that's not, obviously there's a, a natural constraint. To use the technical term, wind and solar are not dispatchable, right? They, their output yeah. cannot be varied easily and thus... Um, that's a problem for the making, keeping the electricity system working. Which the Green New Deal has to deal with because we're proposing shifting 100% to these forms of forms of energy. The other alternative is to store, is to do a kind of a time shifting. The problem here is that we're talking about very large quantities of power and battery tech, your traditional lithium ion battery is very expensive to try to create enough batteries to store that much power. They also, especially when you're in the, even if you could for the daily duck curve, for the seasonal duck curve, batteries, they they deplete over time naturally. So it's a very inefficient means of doing long scale, months long uh, uh, shifting, uh, energy shifting. Um, there are some cool alternatives that are actually quite old. We have um, pumped what they call pumped energy storage, which is just a fancy way of saying you pump water from the bottom of the hill. So when energy is cheap, when the solar, when the sun's shining, you've got all this excess energy that there's not demand for right now. So you use it to pump water up a hill, sits in the reservoir, and then when when the sun's not shining, but you need that energy because demand goes up, you let the water run down the hill, and it powers a turbine, generates electricity. So we're using nature using water to to store energy it is a kind of natural battery problem with this is that not everywhere there's not hills everywhere and there's not natural free-flowing water everywhere so and you also have the problem of well to do that kind of large-scale moving of water you need the epa to sign off they're loathe to create lots of new reservoirs and dams there's a it's a regulatory nightmare as well but peter you actually um came across you had a friend a uh 
and who knows what you're going to find out on the squash court. You found out this, uh, where they're applying this technology to help with the duck curve in Texas, of all places. Right. Well, tech... Texas has gone, even though Texas is very, very, the most market-oriented electricity system in the country, uh, it has also gone very, very much into wind because the wind blows in the panhandle of Texas. And uh, so there's wind, 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 wind in Texas. And they've gone very heavy into wind. And But you have um, – wind is can't be dispatched. And so you have, as you said, this storage problem. Um you also, but because they have market prices in Texas, not only at the wholesale level, but also at the retail level, um, you have very high prices in the summer at, for air conditioning. In other words, very high prices for electricity. Then at night, you have much lower. So this, uh, storage system in, in Texas would pump water uphill at night when power is cheap and then let it run downhill during the daytime to handle that peak demand rather than use a natural gas turbine, which is the way we handle peak demand uh, traditionally. Here's what's even more interesting, is that it doesn't involve a river. It, it involves just a difference in elevation in the hill country in West Texas, and this proposal uses a, uh, a fracking water, waste water from fracking operations to operate a up-and-down reservoir system, which is called closed-loop rather than open because it's not near a river. In other words, this is just an inventive uh, uh, way to use what's a waste product, and they're having difficulty finding injection wells for all the fracking water from all the fracking in in West Texas. Take this water, take advantage of the elevation difference in the hill country in West Texas and create a pump storage system that would be privately run and take advantage of this price difference between the night and the daytime. Which is fascinating. I mean, you're we're mitigating, maybe not solving, but mitigating two environmental problems with one stone. I mean, fewer fracking earthquakes from re-injecting water Correct. In, in, underground yeah. and helping solve the, dusk, the, the duck curve and making wind energy uh, more efficient than it would be otherwise. So, I mean, it, but no one would have imagined this five, 10 years ago. I mean, this is cutting edge, cutting edge application, which is a reminder that if there had been a Green New Deal five years ago, there would have been no funding for this because it wasn't an application that was really imaginable. I mean, this- people have been talking about this for a while, actually. I I, I mean, I, I, I started my career working in renewable energy um, and I've I've always had these ideas around and I think a lot of these ideas – and Peter can speak to this better than I can. um, A lot of these technologies are old technologies that have been around for a really long time and people have been pushing for. Pump storage has certainly been around since since the 20s um, and there's some closed loop systems as well. But this this use of fracking water is certainly – would be peculiar to Texas and Oklahoma. You wouldn't – in Maine, there wouldn't be any any, any frack. Maine has some – pump storage hydro actually based on all its dams and hills. But, well, but the problem is when we get rid of fracking, what are we going to use for the storage facility, right? The, the Green right. New Deal will take us away from that. <laughs> that's, right. yeah. I, that's probably a, a relatively marginal. <laughs> that's right. Well, uh, for time's sake, I think we have to draw it to a close. There's all kinds of other cool potential applications. I think both Joe and I could, you know, new kinds of metals for the bases of, of 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 more efficient batteries. There's concrete block stacking. Maybe we'll have to do an episode on that sometime um, as an alternative to pumped loop hydro storage. All kinds of cool, fascinating stuff that we are on the cusp of that's being tried, that's being rolled out, money's being invested in right now. And it's a little bit frustrating to see those ideas not being featured in something like the Green New Deal. It's Old ideas like, oh, if we just send everyone to college for free, that will solve the environmental crisis. And that's, that is odd. That is odd given all the, the cool actual tech that's being applied in new ways. Um, and, but I think that's where we will close for today. So until next week, be well. Thanks for listening. Building Tomorrow is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Building Tomorrow, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.